We launched into a series last week that we're calling Everyday Disciple Every Day, and I hope you have your journal. Uh, if you don't, be sure you grab one. We want everybody to, to have one and be a part. These journals are great ways for you to follow along, take some notes that help you remember, and then allow you to engage with God's Word throughout your week, maybe in a, perhaps a moment of study and reflection on your own. That would be my prayer and hope for you, the reason we supply these things, because we're walking through a letter. That's what First Thessalonians is. It's a letter written by a man named Paul. And if you're not familiar, I know you've probably heard the name Paul before, but if you're not quite sure how Paul fits into the big story, Paul is the author of the majority of the New Testament. And everything that Paul authors are letters, because what Paul did is Paul spent his his life, once he fell in love with Jesus and was confronted by Jesus, he spent the rest of his life telling that news, traveling around to the known world and planting churches. And he goes to a city known as Thessalonica, and he plants a church there. And he begins, and we have, we talked about last week, we have this understanding that when Paul preached his preaching was like super-duper effective in Thessalonica. He had the result that any preacher would want to have. He had a church form up very quickly. In fact, depending on how you read it, somewhere between about three weeks and two months, a church had already formed up. And if you know anything about church planning, it's an incredibly challenging task. And so here this church forms up, but it's so vibrant that it captures the attention of the larger culture, the powers that be. And Thessalonica is a city that sits on a major trade road and very close to just a few miles from a major seaport. And so there were all kinds of trades, all kinds of guilds, all kinds of commerce going through there. And so it was a very affluent city. It's a major city. Still is a major city in the, in the area even today. And so when this new teaching that no longer says that Caesar is Lord, but there's another named Jesus is Lord, suddenly that becomes subversive and disruptive to the status quo. And culture moves in. So very quickly, some men that felt like they were going to lose profit, that they were going to lose control, that they were going to lose a sense of power, they rallied against Paul and, the, and his friend Silas, who was with him. And they come, and they basically come to a house of a new believer named Jason. And they come, and they storm the house looking for him. But Paul and Silas had already gotten out of town because they knew the persecution was coming. And so they actually drag Jason and his family and everybody that they can find associated with the church and bring him before the powers that be. And they basically charge them with what would be considered perhaps a treason because they're offering allegiances to a different king. They end up paying a bond, a bail, to get released. This persecution keeps going keeps continuing on, and Paul and Silas, they need to move on, and they go on, they keep planting more churches. And in this letter, we have what we believe is the very first letter that Paul writes to any church, or at least it's the first one that we have, that we still retain, 
And he sends it back because his number one concern is, are they holding up under this persecution? He gets word that they're not only holding up, but they're flourishing. And so he sends this letter that we have to encourage them and to equip them on how to live this life. And so just a couple of things that we pulled up from last week. Last week we came up with this, what is a disciple? And we said a, a disciple is simply a student. That's how they would have understand the word, a student. And what he's going to teach us throughout this scripture, throughout this letter, is that a disciple is a student, an imitator of Jesus, a Christian. This is what a Christian should be. It should be a person that is imitating the one that they claim to be Lord. And that's what 1 Thessalonians is helping us to understand. 1 Thessalonians is helping us to understand a very, very important question. And so here is the big question of this series that we started last week. And we're going to continue with this question all the way through. So... Here's the question, because I want us to always have it in frame, because this is what Paul's doing, and this is what Paul's doing for us. So how do you, how do you, an average, ordinary, everyday follower of Jesus? And that's really important, because it's easy to show up at church, hear the Bible stories, and think that the people that have faith, that can live out to be disciples of Jesus, they're some kind of superheroes. They're some kind of, they have something that you don't have because you just feel ordinary. One of my beliefs is that Satan will tempt you because he wants you to, to either wreck your faith by sinning, and he's going to remind you of your past to do that, or he's going to just simply say, but you're average. You can't make an impact for Jesus. So how do average, ordinary, everyday followers that look just like you, how do we live with holiness and hope? And these are the two themes that are going to run through, run through all of this letter. How do we live holiness and hope? Not just how do we live this out, but how do we live it in a hostile world? How does an average, everyday, ordinary follower of Jesus live with holiness and hope in a hostile world? Because understand, the ones that received this letter first, they were still receiving persecution. They were still having to live out their faith at a great cost. So last week we said this. Disciples... These everyday disciples, they embrace the grace of the gospel and the joy of the gospel. And we talked about what that meant to understand that God has extended grace to you and that leads to incredible joy even in the face of suffering. Not that joy is somehow an escape from suffering, but the Christian promise is that you will have joy in spite of your suffering and then disciples embody the life of the gospel. That this good news we live out. So Paul's going to continue that now. How do we live with holiness and hope in a world that is hostile to us? And so if you would, we're going to dive in and take care of most of chapter 2 today. 
Now, I'm going to break this up because Paul, Paul writes, and maybe in an initial reading, this may not seem like, I don't know what to do with that. That's okay. Some things that Paul writes are very difficult, and you have to spend some time chewing on them. We're going to do that. And so Paul writes this, and so Paul is, once again, he's equipping and he's encouraging. And so I want you to follow along in chapter, chapter 2, page 8 in your journals. And we'll, we'll go and we're going to take these in some bite size. You're going to see some things up here that I've got highlighted. And my encouragement always, if you see something up here that's highlighted, you may want to circle that in your own Bible because that's a phrase that I think Paul is using as a theme or a thesis that we can really use as a way to organize our thoughts and understandings of this. So Paul writes this church. And here's what he says. I'll put this up on the screen. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. This is Paul writing to them. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... Okay, so pause just for a second. Paul has already been to a town called Philippi. Now, later, he's going to write a letter back to that very church that we know as the letter to the Philippians. When Paul was there, he experienced some intense persecution, ends up in jail in Philippi. And in jail is not simply four walls with bars and a nice cot. Jail was a dungeon. And he is chained to the wall. And he experiences this kind of persecution. And so this is very difficult. Paul does not ever write from a position of comfort. Paul doesn't write from a position of ease. In fact, when he's writing this very letter that we have, we believe that possibly he's in jail again writing out these letters. And so Paul's writing, and he doesn't write from a place of comfort, and so he shows up in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, having come from Philippi, having experienced already persecution, he says, we've already suffered, and we were shamefully treated. And he was, because he was whipped. And as a Roman citizen, he should not have been. But he endured not only the physical pain, but the shame of it. And now he says, but as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's just a few words, but he's saying, this is difficult. For our appeal, this is our preaching, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Come back to that in just a second. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, a little context on that last half right there. It says, we did not come with words, we did not seek words of flattery or a pretext for greed. What Paul and Silas are doing would have been very typical in this world. Traveling teachers and philosophers would have gone around, and because philosophy, this how shall you live your life industry, was good money. And so these teachers or these preachers would show up in a town, 
and they would have a philosophy to espouse. And if you follow their philosophy, this is the way to success. Does this sound pretty familiar to you? We live in exactly the same kind of world, the same kind of dynamic. Everywhere you turn, if you will Google self-help, you get a gazillion results back. Everybody is offering up a plan. Everybody's offering up a strategy. Everybody's offering up a philosophy. And if you will just buy the book, buy the course, buy the CD, buy the, the download, subscribe to the podcast, whatever it is, you too can be in on the secret. So Paul shows up, and to the outsider at first, it, he looks like all these others in this industry. And yet there's something distinctly different about him. He goes about it in such a way where they're not making profit from it. And he's saying, you remember how we came to you. And we didn't charge you. And we didn't start trying to collect money. And we didn't start trying to increase our fan base. But we came to you without flattery, and we just brought you the truth. That's what Paul is saying. And so he goes back to, so he uses that, and he's in that context that he says this line in the verse right before it. He says, he says that just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. So Paul, facing persecution, facing struggles, and with just a few words could lighten his load. All Paul has to do is say, well, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the ultimate authority. And suddenly, the persecution begins to dissipate. That's... that's the claim that he would make. And yet, he's willing to take on the persecution because he is saying to himself, to the Thessalonica church and to us, we're not to please men, but to please God. And so here's the first takeaway that I want you to understand. Every day, disciples decide whose approval matters. This is what Paul wants the Thessalonica church to understand. Every day... As you wake up, you have a choice that you get to make. Whose approval will matter? Whose pleasing will I seek today? And the temptation for us is still just as great as it was back then to seek the temptation, to seek the approval of the world. The world will always invite you. Culture will always invite you. In fact, it will entice you to come Seek its blessing. Seek its approval. Have you noticed how fickle culture is with its own blessing? Culture will bait you to come in if you will just line up your life this way, if you will behave this way, if you use these kind of words, if you'll buy into this philosophy, if you'll dress this way, if you'll buy this. We will then, culture out there, will approve of you and give you its blessing which will last for about an hour and six minutes. And then it will turn on you. It will bait you in such a way, if you will just do all that you want with your body, 
until then you end up in shame, and then it turns around and pours the shame on you. If, if, you will do, if you will live life for yourself, we will approve, culture says, and call you a self-made person. But when you blow up your family, then we'll come back and judge you. Cultures always, this is why cancel culture is so rampant these days. It's because culture's just going to turn almost every single day. It says, if you live to please that, it will go nowhere. But you're going to have to decide each day who you're going to give to please. He says, these disciples are getting up and they're deciding that we will seek in this day. And the one that we're living in right now, I will seek to please God. Whose favor does not wane back and forth like a changing wind. Who doesn't change just because the next thing trends on Twitter. Who doesn't call us to feel the need to jump onto social media and seek validation by how many likes and thumbs up and hearts we can receive. But he says, you matter to me enough for me to send my son to die for you. Every day, disciples get up and decide, who will we please today? This is, gives us the ability as disciples, and this matters so much whether you're a student whether you're at the other end of life, that disciples can always make the hard, difficult, right decision over the easy, wrong decision. This is where that comes from. Because it will always be easier to give in as we seek the approval of cultures, we seek the approval of those around us than to make the difficult right decisions. But disciples who know who they're trying to please, and it's not others and it's not self, but it is their heavenly creator, the one that made them and breathed life into them and redeemed them that they're seeking to please. This is how they live it out every day, even in a hostile world. Paul goes on. And he unpacks more. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I, I love this particular verse. This is a little bit of a side here. Do you see how endearing Paul is? Paul is saying, I loved you not only enough to give you the gospel, but also just to share our lives together. This is why church is so important. Because we share our lives with each other. You've heard me say before, your faith is intensely personal. But it was never meant to be a private affair. Because we are linked together as disciples. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's just talking about his concern for them. And he says, like a mother among you, like my children, I've worried about you, and I've prayed for you. 
He goes on. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, and we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed you the gospel. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father, once again, very endearing language, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. We came to you and we loved you dearly and our message had a very specific call. The call was not, you're okay, I'm okay, we don't have to worry about anything. The call was that God has redeemed you in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel that he keeps referring to. The good news. God has made a way to get to him. God has come to you. This was radical then. It's radical now that God has come to you. And with that, there is a call. Look at this. A charge to you to walk in the manner worthy of God who calls you. Every day, disciples remember their calling. Every day, disciples remember their calling. Paul will say in Ephesians, in the letter to the, to the church in Ephesus later, he says, live a life worthy of the calling. It's almost exactly the same phrase that he uses here. Live a life worthy of the calling. He says, I want you to live up to this. I want, this is a, a vision that God has for you. Now, let me be very clear. When he says, live a life worthy of calling, or I urge you, I charge you to live this way, live into the calling, you don't live into the calling because you're trying to earn the calling. God has already placed the calling on your life. What Paul is saying is not that you come along and you earn it, but you begin to see your entire self and your life and your worth and your value through the eyes of God. This is very much, remember all that parent language that came just before? This is very much God as the good father looking at his children saying, this is my vision for you. This is what I want. Any kind of parent has a vision for their child. And if you're a good parent, it's not that they have to earn your, your affection, but you have a vision for them that you're wanting them to live into. Perhaps maybe you've had this conversation. My parents would have this one with me. If I ever misbehaved, I was out of line with the person I was supposed to be. They would have a conversation, and oftentimes it would go like this. Scott, remember, you're a Meyer. We don't act that way. Okay. Now, did I suddenly lose my status as being a Meyer? No. Was it somehow in jeopardy? No. But what was mom and dad saying? That's not how we live. We live differently, and you will live this way because this is who you're called to be. You've been called. And whatever atmosphere or arena of life you find yourself in outside that, in that arena, you're still called. 
So whatever your career is, whatever your family status is, whatever your marital status is, whatever your educational status is, whatever your physical ability is, doesn't matter. You have been called and Jesus is calling and Paul is reinforcing this is the life that you live into. And so it should begin to bother us as disciples of Jesus when we participate in behaviors that are not in line with that calling. Not again because we're trying to earn God's favor. Not again because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because we are the saved. We are the disciples. We are, remember what disciple is, the imitators of Jesus. That's what Paul's encouraged them to do. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. See, we've changed citizenship. No longer are we citizens of this world. Now, your address may be here. You get your mail here. This is where you shop for your groceries. I get that. But we live as people that understand that this is not home. We were always meant to be the visiting team. We do not feel like we've got home court advantage right here. And so we live differently knowing that our home is elsewhere, knowing that our calling is elsewhere, knowing that there's something beyond this. And so it is simply not what we live in and exist in right here in the now is all that matters, but we have a different sense about us. And so no longer do we see ourselves as citizens of this place where this is the ultimate home, but we see ourselves as ambassadors into this place, representing the king to which we have our allegiance to. That's the life worthy of the calling. He finishes out this way. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God for what you heard from, what you heard from us, you accepted. It is not as the word of men, but as the word, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work with you for believers. Now, if we'd stopped right there, if we stopped right there, this would be a nice verse. This is about to go very dark very quickly. Watch what happens. Verse 14. And for you, brothers, became imitators, there's our disciples, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered, you're going to notice how many times suffering and hostility and discomfort and all that come up in this letter. The same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So you suffered what you saw other Christians suffering. Keep going. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. This gets heavy pretty fast. If you've ever been taught that the Christian life is just simply easy and sweet... I don't know what gospel you're hearing. Because Paul is very, from his own life and from the experience of the Thessalonians, and I believe now in our world today, that this, our, against our culture, there is a struggle and it's not easy. And so, but he's saying, remember, they did this to Jesus. Let's not be surprised that if our leader struggled in this way or was at least persecuted in this way that somehow we're going to avoid that. And they oppose 
all mankind. Finish it out. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So he's laid out the charge. He's laid out the difficulty. He's laid out the hostilities that they're experiencing. And then he puts this tagline on the very end. But wrath has come upon them at last. There's a vindication that's coming. Now, what's interesting, he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. And if you were the Thessalonians, if you're one of the people in the church and you read this letter, you would say, I'm not so sure it showed up yet. Because they're still experiencing the persecution. They're still in the middle of it. So is Paul lying? Is Paul just giving some false hope? No, Paul is highlighting the truth and the reality that we live in and it's considered the now and the not yet. Paul is saying, wrath has come. They may not have experienced it yet, but it's inevitable. There will be justice done. So the last thing I would say, every day, disciples know the end of the story. They know how the story comes out. They know who holds the victory. And the power that comes from that means that you don't have to sweat the victory. Whatever battle or struggle or oppression or hostilities you're experiencing right now, I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying that at the end, we know how it comes out. We know that there is a victory that has already been won, even though it hasn't been fully revealed at this moment. Paul is encouraging them with this truth. Every day, get up and remind yourself, I know how the victory comes. It's very easy in the world today. In fact, you don't have to go very far. The church seems to take a real beating from the world today, right? I mean... Many of you may have experienced this. Maybe it's not really popular for you to say we go to church. And the church has got all kinds of criticism and all kinds of hostility toward it and all kinds of experience and all kinds of oppression, some in this country, definitely around, uh, around the world. And it's easy for those of us inside the church to begin to fret, oh, what will become of the church? Oh, what's going to happen to it? Is it just going to fall and collapse? Here's the good news. I've read the end of the book. We do just fine. Because it's not us. The one that walked out of the tomb is the head of the church. It's his church. His victory has already been claimed in a, from a tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He's just running the clock out at this point. Every day, disciples know the end of the story. And I say that not to minimize anything that you're going through right now. Please don't hear that. But do hear this. Whatever you're going through, it's temporary not eternal. And there's a difference. So every day, those of us seeking to be disciples of Jesus, 
we hang on to these truths and we decide whose approval matters. We remember that we're living out a calling worthy because it comes straight from God. And we remind ourselves of who holds the end of the story in their hands. If you would, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, for all the disciples, the everyday, ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill disciples that each of us are, would you help these words by Paul be words that we live with? Words where we understand who we're trying to seek approval from each day. And Father, may our worth and worthiness come from you, and may you give us eyes to see that. Father, for anyone who's hearing this message that is seeking approval from anybody else and is running that difficult race, would you please show them through your eyes their worth. Let them experience the calling that you've placed on their life. And Father, on days when we're ready to give up, would you remind us of the end of the story? That you're in control, you're the author, and you're the perfecter of our faith. And may that empower us to live with hope in this hostile world. Father, I pray not that you would make all the hostilities go away, but that you would make hope in the middle of the hostilities be the normal day for us. Father, I ask all this in the one that is king, the Lord of lords. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.